feel the goodness of the Lord. Thank you, Sister Christian Davis. Thank you, choir. Let's give God some praise for the music ministry. Would you join me in Psalm 137 as we take a moment to expound upon the last three verses, verses 7, 8, and 9. Psalm 137, verses 7, 8, and 9. Psalm 137, beginning at verse 7. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, or destroy it, destroy it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one, how blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense from which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your children against the rock. Amen. You may be seated. The last three verses of Psalm 137 is the voice of vengeance, the voice of one who has been a victim at the outset of the text, a victimized voice who is asked to sing a song of victory and yet that victorized or victimized but yet victorious voice now protrudes from his or her soul the language of vengeance, anger, the request of death. It would be safe, I think, for me to presume among most of us, if not all in this gathering, that at some point in time, we may have either heard with our own ears or read in some statement where someone has actually wished, expected the realm of death to fall upon, particularly one who has brought upon death in the life of another. We've heard the requests that one should pay for what they have done. The suggestion in the Old Testament was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And although the Bible is replete with God saying to his creation, vengeance is mine, death doesn't escape the text. In fact, when one has taken a life, amazingly in Leviticus 19, one's life is required in return. 
But in this text, there is something strange that is illuminating. It is suggesting to us that we have to wrestle with the understanding that death is really more than the finality of human existence. Paul Turnier, the Swiss psychiatrist, says that in order to handle death, we have even resided to changing the language that it may soften the blow in reference to when death occurs in our circle. For example, he says that we no longer called the undertaker the undertaker. We now call him the mortician. Or we no longer call the place to which we lie the remains a casket. We now call it a coffin. And the place to which we lay their final remains, we used to call it a cemetery. Now we call it a memorial park. It's a way of trying to soften the blow by use of language that it doesn't hurt us as deeply as perhaps it previously has. But death is one of those things where we never like to discuss that. In fact, we would like for the subject to be as far away as possible, but we can't escape what the scripture says. In Ecclesiastes 3, Solomon conveys to us, beginning in that first and second verse, that there is a time to be born, and then there is a time to die. There's a time to plant, and then there's a time to uproot, and he goes on and on to suggest to us that life is full of cyclical seasons. It's a time for this and a time for that. It's a moment in which we recognize that we may have escaped a number of episodes that could have led to death, but in reality we know at some point in time our name will be called, our number will be selected, however you wish to term that, it will certainly come to an end. But I want to contend in the text that although it sounds like, and it, it may very well be, I could be uh, one who may be infringing my own conviction on the text because I, I'm not living in the time frame of the writer of Psalm 137, so I really don't know what's happening in his or her voice, what's going on in the context of their existence. All I know is that they are disturbed, that they have been exiled, and they are disappointed that their oppressors have asked them to sing a song of Zion. And now, in the closing language of verse 7, 8, and 9, it's as if the whole episode shifts to a spirit of vengeance, of revenge. Listen to the language. And, and amazingly, whomever the voice is in Psalm 137, at least they don't exhort their vengeance directly on the oppressor. But instead, they direct it to God by saying in the opening words of that verse 7, Lord, remember, remember, remember what they have done to us. Remember what they have done to me. That's, can we be honest for a moment? There have been times when someone has inflicted levels of pain, levels of agony. And rather than to respond, we go to the Lord and say, God, 
However you decide to handle it, please handle it, but may I make a suggestion? <laughs> or I confess in my own state of standing at this desk on many homegoing services, and particularly persons who have passed into eternity and you sit wondering in your mind why considering the kind of person that they were and, and what they did in life in terms of contribution to life and people and you say, Lord, I have and you may not have had to do this and I'm, I hope you haven't, but Lord, I, I, I've got a long list of others that I think would have been far better candidates for transitioning at this moment, why this person? Or we could have been in a state where we were so angry at the offense pressed upon us. And I wouldn't ask you to raise your hand because I wouldn't want anyone to stand convicted, but we in return says, Lord, if, if you decide to take them out, bless be the tide. The thought seems humorous at the moment, but there are some people who can push you to the limit. And you come to a point where if you've been informed that they've transitioned, your question might be, I wonder if I should go to the homegoing service. And then there's the other side of that coin. The other side is when you hear of death occurring to someone who has been mean and oppressive and who has been the object of enforcing frustration and anger and agony on someone's life. You kind of wonder, will they ever pay for the unjust deeds they've administered to other lives? See, Psalm 137 is a triangle of countries particularly two that has impressed their strength upon one. It's a strange text because not in this text, but in further texts that speak of Edom, those who are the descendants of Isaac's son, Jacob, and Esau. But most importantly, they are the descendants of Esau. And you kind of wonder that strange statement that comes up in Romans chapter 9, verse 11 through 13, where Paul says, God says, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. That's strange language in the sense that how could the loving God speak publicly that he loves one group and then hates another group? Not understanding that because the descendants of Jacob, remember the story of Jacob and Esau. Esau comes in and he's hungry and he sells his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of beans. And remember when, when Jacob realizes that he has certainly captured the birthright of Esau, who is the eldest son of Isaac, that means that he's heir to all of Isaac's throne, of all of Isaac's access. What happens is that Esau realizes that he has come in from that evening and not only served his birthright, but when his father is in his dying days, he goes to him to be blessed. And rather than to bless Esau, Isaac blesses Jacob. And Isaac is mad. In fact, Isaac says, as long as daddy's eyes is open, you're safe. But once daddy closes his eyes, I'm coming after you. 
And when you read the story, Esau is so angry at Jacob slash Israel that Jacob's for his life because Rebekah tells him, you need to get up out of town. Because your brother Esau is no joke. When he is mad, he is mad. And I know for a fact right now, he is angry. Long story short, Jacob leaves. Jacob runs wondering if he'll ever run into Esau again. And if he does, what will happen? Let me tell you what God does in an amazing way when anger seizes your spirit. Somehow, in his wrestling with God, he changes the heart of Esau. He sends a message to his brother Jacob and tells him, I want to meet you. And Jacob says, this is not good. In fact, if, if I know Esau, he is going to kill me. Amazingly, Jacob decides to put all of his family way in the background and puts himself up front. He finally meets Esau, and when he meets Esau, he's thinking that Esau is going to kill him, and Esau says, man, come closer. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to hurt you. I love you. You're my brother. And Jacob says, you mean tell me you're not here to kill me? No, man, I'm here to set you free because the God of my salvation has set me free, even from a moment of vengeance and anger. Long story short, they become good brotherly friends again. But that doesn't constitute the behavior of Jacob's descendants and Esau's descendants. And Esau's descendants are called Edomites, and they forever hated Israel. And they made their life a living hell along with the nation of Babylon and the Assyrians. See, that's why in the text he says, God, remember Babylon, what they did, and remember the Edomites, what they did, how they wished. In fact, the Edomites stood in the background and watched the Assyrians and the Babylonians stumble, tear up Jerusalem. They said, bring it to the ground, down to the foundation. We want them destroyed. You ever had anybody to wish you were dead? Anybody who wished you ill to the point where whatever is happening, they hope it takes you out? They hope your life is not only turned upside down, but comes in complete demise. I have. And I hope you never do. It's an eerie feeling to feel that people who believe to love God wish death upon you. Who will stand in the sanctuary and hope that you drop dead. That's a, that's a terrible feeling to hear of persons who practice, but we do. We carry such hatred and anger sometimes because whenever the heart is saturated by anger and hate, don't ever say what you won't do or what you won't say. Because until you're pushed to that point, you really don't know what you will say or what you will do. We, we want to say in our Christian character, I will never do X, Y, Z, nor will I ever say that, but you'll never know until you're put in that predicament. And here it is. 
the voice that comes out of Psalm 137 leaves us with a couple lessons to realize that there is a time when death is an appropriate expression. See, I don't think that he really means that he wants the people physically to die, although the text may literally suggest that, but I want to suggest that maybe his real concern is the systems to which Babylon and Assyrian represents. It's the idea of oppressing someone, of bringing someone into subjection. It's the idea of marginalizing, of discriminating, of finding ways to keep somebody down and to keep them bottled in the context of infliction. I believe that he's really saying, Lord, destroy that system because people are the composition of systems. Without people, the system won't work. In fact, it is the people who actually initiated the system. But do something to convict and to convince their consciousness that something needs to change in your life. And I think he might be further suggesting unto us that there's a time when you look at your life and you'll notice that there are evidences of suggested imposed death all around you. Doesn't have to necessarily be physical death, but emotional and mental death and spiritual death. We, we were talking this morning in Sunday school about that moment in which Adam hears God walking in the cool of the eating, says Genesis chapter 3. And he calls out, Adam, where art thou? And the question may be, God, is he challenging Adam to answer the question, where are you spiritually now in your relationship with me? Because something has cut off our intimacy. For you made a choice to go in a different direction than the one that I was leading you. And as a result, you now know, as the Bible says, your eyes were open, you know what shame is all about. You now know what evil is and what good is. And I want to know now, can you handle the transition that your life now will enter into? And that's the queerness of this text that I, I want to lift. And I want to say a couple of things that I think the text might suggest. If you listen to the verbiage, Lord, remember against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, the day that the Edomites stood back and watched our demise when they should have helped us, but they didn't. They wanted to see us destroyed. But maybe if we transition out of the vengeance aspect, because when we read Romans chapter 12, God reminds us that whatever you do, don't take vengeance into your own hands, but remember, pay good for evil. And that's... That's something I got to adjust to. That's something we got to adjust to. How, how do you pay good for someone who's done evil? In fact, God says in Romans 12, he says through Paul, whatever you do, do good. In fact, live at peace as best as you possibly can. Which suggests to me that God already knows. I know there's a limit. I know, I know they may push you too far. But until they push you to that point, live at peace with all men. And if that's not good enough, there is something in this text about Edom 
because in Isaiah 49 through chapter 52 and in the small book called Obadiah verses 10 through 18 Edom is slated for destruction in other words God says I told you that I will handle your enemies but in my own time and in my own way in the meantime God makes a suggestion through the lips of the voice in this text who says how blessed are those, verse 8, who pay you back for the wrong you've done me. And if that's not worth enough, he says in verse 8, verse 9, how blessed are those who will take your children and dash them against the stone. In other words, his vengeance is so deep that he even wishes harm upon your own descendants. And yet we can't get wrapped up in that. We can't settle for the fact that even though someone has pushed us to the point where we deemed death upon them, God says, take another look. For remember, the exile is where I put you. And I put you there because you were simply disobedient to me. And as a result, I needed to get your attention. And it is amazing how God can let some people and some situations and some things exist among us to get our attention. And our attention he will get. I mean, God can sometimes allow stuff to rise to the point where we're wondering if it will ever leave. In fact, who gave you my number? Who told you where I lived at? And yet it doesn't go anywhere. It's as if God, who is in control of all of it, and you're wondering, Lord, do you not know I'm down here suffering? I'm struggling. I'm wondering, is this stuff ever going to stop? And God says, it will when I get ready. And it will when you change your behavior. I will handle Babylon. I will handle the Assyrians. I will handle Edom. But in the meantime, let me handle you. There's a couple things that this text says. One is that the, the voice of Psalm 37 did a couple things. One, unfortunately, he empowered the exile to make him bitter instead of making him better. You didn't catch that. He gave permission to someone who was oppressing him to make him bitter instead of making him better. He told his trouble to make him even more angry instead of saying to himself, this might be trouble, but I got to find the triumphantness in this trouble that I find myself in. He said clearly that I have got to understand that this trouble, it's temporary. But yet he let it made him bitter. Just read verse 8 and 9. Destruction is what he wanted in terms of outcome. And yet the text suggests not bitter, but better. See, it reminds me of the story of Joseph. When Joseph is in prison and when Joseph gets out of prison and when his brothers who sold him into the space that he was in and allowed him to be in that context, God has his hand in the midst of all of it, orchestrated his brother's rejection, 
orchestrated his being sold to the Ishmaelites on their way to Egypt, orchestrated he being in Potiphar's house, orchestrated Potiphar's wife, orchestrated even being put into prison, orchestrated being the leader in the prison, orchestrated being elevated when he comes in prison and out of prison to become prime minister in Egypt, orchestrated where his brothers would experience famine and they got to come to Egypt to find food, orchestrated that they'd be standing right before him in the darkest of their hour, orchestrated that they would feel in their heart that they were so guilty that Joseph was going to kill them, orchestrated that God got into the heart of Joseph and told Joseph, now is the time for you to reveal to your brothers who you are. And when he did so, his brothers dropped down to the ground and thought that he was going to take their life. And Joseph said, what you meant for evil God meant for the good I cannot allow your evil to make me more bitter instead I'll allow God to make me more better and that's what Psalm 137 says when you have been exiled don't stop singing your song and even when you're in and request a song sing on because you allow the exile to make you better than to make you bitter but there's a second thing he says he secondly says you must permit your exile moments to become your most exceptional moments See, if you notice all through the Bible, we, we don't really celebrate the real good stuff. Now, by that I mean the outcome in terms of victoriousness. We really celebrate how they got to the victory. See, we don't, when we think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what do we think of? The fiery furnace. Then we get into what they said in the furnace. And on the way out of the furnace. But have you noticed? Without the furnace, they have no testimony. They have no story. And maybe God is trying to tell us, you've been going for a long time without a story. I got you in exile so I can develop your story. And in developing your story, these moments of the exile become your most exceptional moments. And I don't know about you, but it's in exile where God shows me his power, his essence in terms of resurrection, his ability to infuse you with new power like you've never seen before. It's when you get into trouble that God can show you he can calm the storm, he can handle the raging sea, he can bring your enemies and make them your footstool. But without an exilic moment with prayer, you will never know the power of God because God says I purposely designed these exceptional moments that they might be history in your journey but also remember oppression may be painful but you have to determine it's going to be purposeful see God I wish I could explain to you why God always allows the worst to happen sometimes. Once again, I've been through moments when I said, Lord, I know some other folk who just ain't done right at all. And yet you let their moments not only roll on a little while longer, but you let them enjoy the abundance of the journey. I have been where Habakkuk was where the prophet Habakkuk 
looks at God and says to God, how is it that you let the Assyrians just roll on and be as powerful as they are? And God says to Habakkuk, well, I'm, I'm getting them ready for something I'm going to do because once again, Israel decided that I'm not going to be the God of their salvation. I have to remind them who saved them, who redeems them, who keeps them, who watches over them, who protects them, who supplies for them because every now and then we forget from whom all blessings flow. We do. We forget about how God made a way for us and how God opened doors for us. Most importantly, how God keeps us and provides for us. Like the more God gives, the broader we become in the sense that we forget about from whom the blessings flow. And we reprioritize God. When we first got saved, he was number one, the top of the list. As soon as the deacon or trustee unlocked the door, there we was at church, ready to go in and worship. But over time, God has been pushed off the throne. And he's been reorganized to be down at level two and three instead of at level one. And God says, okay, y'all, you know, you want to play that game? No problem. I mean, you know, I'm still sitting on my throne. Not on your heart, obviously, but I'm still sitting on the throne. But just to show you that I do got this thing under control, boom, here comes trouble. Here comes disappointment. Here comes sickness. Here comes fear. Here comes all kind of mechanisms and episodes and situations to make us conform to the will of God and the presence of God. And through it all, we not only gained a testimony, but we come to realize God says, I'm gonna make it painful, but I want you to find out the purpose in it. And I shall never forget, never forget the statement I heard the late Gardner Taylor make, and that was, it's a bad thing to go through hell and don't learn from it. That statement stay, has stayed in my mind. It's bad to go through the darkness and don't learn something from being in the darkness. There's a purpose there. There's a purpose for being in that situation. Even after you and I make a decision that puts us there, there's a purpose there. And the purpose is to find out what it is and to live through it. Because in living through it, we come to recognize that the past must never, push never possess us, but it must always propel us into the future where we're going. Can't possess us, it shouldn't. If it possesses us, it means that it has us under its control. But if it propels us, pushes us, that's why I try to encourage people, don't linger in the past. Don't keep going back looking through the rearview mirror and I, as well as anyone else, am a victim of my own suggestions. Because there's something about the past, particularly we've been disappointed, that we just don't want to let go of. But have you noticed you can't change it? If anything, if you ain't careful, it'll change you. And so the challenge is to not allow it to possess living in yesterday, but to propel moving us into tomorrow. Because it's a learning experience that should help us grow 
If I asked, I'm sure many of us could raise our hand. How, mo- how many of us have had jobs that we were disappointed in? We wish we had never answered the ad to go there to be a part of that employment. We hated, I'm not talking lightly, we hated the people that we worked around. We hated the job assignment. There was everything about it that was negative. And when we got out, we almost rolled on the ground shouting hallelujah. But... There were lessons that we learned on that job. There were circumstances that we realized had it not been a part of our experience, we wouldn't know what we know now. I've said, I'm sure you say, how many of us wish we could go back? We've all said this, man, if I knew now, or 20 years ago, I mean, if I knew 20 years ago what I know now, well, you know this as well as I do, you don't. And you won't because you can't know what hasn't been experienced because the experience is an amazing teacher. You can, you can learn a lot through an academian book, but ain't nothing like having to have to walk through that thing with your own two feet and your own two hands and your own two eyes and your own two ears and your own heart and your own mind and to try to walk through it and be successful. Nothing, nothing like that. There's another thing this text tells me. It tells me that you must kill the parasites that are eating away at your purpose. And that's where death becomes an appropriate measure. What I find interesting is and in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, and then I think it's Numbers chapter 24, verse 9, I believe it is. There's a line there. And the line says, God says both to Israel as a nation, but initially in Genesis to Abraham as the father of the nations, I will bless them that bless you, and I will curse them that curse you. In other words, he gives Abraham and his descendants, Israel, a promise that is overwhelmingly, in some ways, a bit prejudiced. Whoever blesses you, I will bless them. And then whoever curses you, I will curse them. But then I'm rescued with that opinion by Paul in Romans chapter 4. Because Paul at least helps me understand in both 3 and 4, because I am a descendant of Abraham by way of faith, all the promises given to Abraham is given unto me as well. So God says in return that I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. He's admonishing us, don't spend your time trying to pay your enemy back. Don't spend your time trying to spew out vengeance. Don't spend your time trying to get even. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. I will take care of that. You just make sure that the parasites around you that's eaten away at your purpose, get rid of them. And that's a, that's a tough saying because the parasite could be my wife, could be my husband, could be my son, my daughter, could be something that's very dear to me. It's not a literal killing. It's a killing of the spirit. 
It's destroying that which is attempting to destroy you. Jesus made it clear in John 10 when he says, the thief cometh not but for to kill, to steal, and destroy. There is a force behind the work of Satan that I really believe he has what I call a development precise plan to challenge us. And I use the metaphor of fires because I think Satan likes to start fires all around us. Sometimes, have you noticed, it's a little problem here, a little problem there, a little problem here, a little problem there, and you notice you got multiple fires burning at the same time. But fires is strange. It really is a suggestion that Satan might be trying to get us to decide, what do I do with the fire? Do I let it burn or do I extinguish it? If I decide to extinguish it, problem solved. But if I let it burn, how far will it burn? Now, you may not catch the meaning of that, but watch this. When I was a little boy, you can't do it here in Virginia. I know now, but when I lived in North Carolina with my grandmother, we didn't cut the grass with a lawnmower. My grandmother would go out there and throw out some gasoline, and we burned off the grass. In other words, I'm trying to tell you, all fires are not bad because sometimes it's good to burn off in order to spur new growth I have seen the forest fires out in California they've showed pictures where in one week the fire was burning in fact it burned all of the greenery come back a week or two later and you can see small green sputting up out of the ground and it's yet still burned and you kind of wonder, with all of that damage, greenery, soil, how in the world can you grow some greenery in all of that darkness? Because you're not digging deep enough. See, if you dig further down beneath the surface, way down there, deep in there, you find fresh soil that very well has tables of water running through it which supplies for it the nourishment that it needs. But it will never know its full potential until it has been burnt on the surface. And that might be why sometimes we're in exile because God has to burn what we have on top in order for us to see what's deep down on the inside of us. And we will never recognize how much potential we fully have until something causes us to dig deeper. And when that happens, we discover, I got more faith, I got more strength, I got more power than I ever thought I had. So much so that when we come through it, we look back and we say, wow, I, there were times when I didn't know if I was going to make it through that. But look what God did, supplied me with the strength to push through it. And by pushing through it, I'm now able to know there's more in me, but every now and then I got to dig it out in order for me to feel its full effects. Let me finally say that I think the enemy confronts our faith that it might be exercised and exalted. See, vengeance is spewing from the language 
of the writer of Psalm 137. But let's go beyond that. I don't think it's physical death that he's crying out, but spiritual, emotional death to a point where maybe who he is is being stretched. And because he's being stretched, he's wondering who's going to die, me or the one who's causing me the pain? And maybe God is trying to tell him, neither. I'm going to make you live in the midst of what you think and where you think you may die. Because we all got to kill Goliath at some point in time. We all have to bring Jericho down to the ground. We have to move beyond Judas. And we have to be willing to dismantle and destroy the mental assaults of Nebuchadnezzar, of Herod the Great. Because some of your assaults, some of your attempted assassinations come from strange places, places you probably never would imagine, systems, once again, that you never could imagine. So I leave you this final thought. What I get out of Psalm 137 is this. I'm in an exilic place, vanished, isolated a bit, but I got a song. And my song lets me exist in the midst of the dark moment. I do have anger. We have anger. But God says, be careful how you channel your anger. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says that it's okay to be angry. Just don't fall to a level of sin. He says, be angry and sin not. In other words, he suggests very highly that, in fact, anger produces a fighting spirit. A spirit that will bring you victory. In fact, sometimes we need to be angry. Because in getting angry, we've told ourselves enough is enough. And when we get to that point, we're willing to fight to bring about change. See, when you transition to Psalm 138, change is coming in the life of the writer of the psalm. He transitions to something different because I think he realizes there's no need of me wasting my time in arguing or even wishing the worst on my enemy. There's life left for me to gain that's far bigger than this. And that's what I came to tell you. Don't waste your time trying to pay your enemy back. Just think of what Jesus could have done if he really wanted to handle Judas. But he didn't. He let Judas handle himself. You remember the closing story of Judas' life? In secret, he goes and meets with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they pay him 30 pieces of silver just to tell them where Jesus will be at a certain point in time. When you read the gospel narratives, it says that Judas, once he realized what he had done, he was deeply distressed and tried to go back and give the money back. And they said, oh, no, we don't want that money back. We got what we wanted. And what did Judas do to handle his disappointment? 
he commits suicide. Because maybe if he allowed his anger to taught him a lesson, he had turned his back on Jesus, but Jesus would have forgiven him. In fact, he did. And how many of us have turned our backs on the Lord and we've still gotten forgiveness? And I know I'm right because you're sitting here today. If it hadn't been for forgiveness and grace. So I wonder why God doesn't deal with us like he dealt with the Old Testament. Someone did something wrong. Whew, death immediately. But when we get to the New Testament, even our enemies get a lot of grace and mercy. And their time is extended. I keep, keep wondering, why not knock them out? Shoot, they did wrong. Knock them out. They did the wrong thing, Lord. Matthew 7, 1. Be careful who you decide to judge. Watch the beam in your own eye before you start administering justice in the eyes of another. Watch where you point your finger because it maybe turn back on us. But sing your song. That's what we were singing earlier, songs. It does something to the spirit. And I don't wish him death. I just know God will handle it in his own way and in his own time. In the meantime, let me enjoy the blessing that God has in store for me. Whatever they may be, all I know is I got victory in Jesus' name. Amen. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise this morning. As we stand to our feet.